Section 13 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Louis-Napoleon, Part 3. The situation of Louis-Napoleon was indeed extremely difficult and critical. He had to fight against the combined influences of rank, fashion, and intellect, against an enlightened public opinion for it could not be forgotten that his power was usurped and sustained by brute force and the ignorant masses he would have been nothing without the army in some important respects he showed marvellous astuteness and political sagacity such for instance as in converting england from an enemy to a friend but he won england by playing the card of common interests against russia the emperor was afraid to banish the most eminent men in his empire so he tolerated them and hated them suspending over their heads the sword of Damocles. This they understood, and kept quiet except among themselves. But France was a hotbed of sedition and discontent during the whole reign of Louis-Napoleon, at least among the old government leaders, Orleanists, Legitimists, and Republicans alike. Considering the difficulties and hatreds with which Napoleon III had to contend, I am surprised that his reign lasted as long as it did longer than those of louis the eighteenth and charles the tenth combined longer than that of louis philippe with the aid of the middle classes and the ablest statesmen of france an impressive fact which indicates great ability of some kind on the part of the despot but he paid dearly for his passion for power in the enormous debts entailed by his first war of prestige and in the death of more than a hundred thousand men in the camps on the field of battle and in the hospitals if he had any conscience he would have been appalled but he had no conscience any more than his uncle when anything stood in his way the gratification of selfish ambition overmastered patriotism and real fame and prepared the way for his fall and the ignominy which accompanied it had either of the monarchs who ruled france since the revolution of seventeen ninety one been animated with a sincere desire for the public good and been contented to rule as a constitutional sovereign as they all alike swore to rule i do not see why they might not have transmitted their thrones to their heirs napoleon i certainly could have perpetuated his empire in his family had he not made such awful blunders as the invasion of spain and russia which made him unable to contend with external enemies charles x might have continued to reign had he not destroyed all constitutional liberty Louis-Philippe might have transmitted his power to the House of Orleans had he not sacrificed public interests to his greediness for money and his dynastic ambition. And Napoleon III might have reigned until he died had he fulfilled his promises to the parties who elevated him. But he could have continued to reign in the violation of his oaths only so long as his army was faithful and successful. When at last, hopelessly defeated and captured, his throne instantly crumbled away. He utterly collapsed and was nothing but a fugitive. What a lesson this is to all ambitious monarchs who sacrifice the interests of their country to personal aggrandizement. So long as a nation sees the monarch laboring for the aggrandizement and welfare of the country rather than of himself, it will rally around him and venerate him even if he leads his subjects to war and enrolls them in his gigantic armies, as in the case of the monarchs of Prussia since Friedrich II and even those of Austria. Napoleon III was unlike all these, for with transcendent cunning and duplicity he stole his throne, and then sacrificed the interests of France to support his usurpation. That he was an adventurer, as his enemies called him, is scarcely true, for he was born in the Tuileries, was the son of a king, and nephew of the greatest sovereign of modern times. 
so far as his usurpation can be palliated for it never can be excused it must be by his deep-seated conviction that he was the heir of his uncle that the government of the empire belonged to him as a right and that he would ultimately acquire it by the will of the people had thiers or guizot or changarnier seized the reins they would have been adventurers all men are apt to be called adventurers by their detractors when they reach a transcendent position even such men as napoleon i cromwell and canning were stigmatized as adventurers by their enemies a poor artist who succeeds in winning a rich heiress is often regarded as an adventurer even though his ancestors have been respectable and influential for generations most successful men owe their elevation to genius or patience or persistent industry rather than to accidents or tricks louis napoleon plotted and studied and wrote for years with the ultimate aim of ruling france even though he waded through slaughter to a throne and he would have deserved his throne had he continued true to the principles he professed what a name he might have left had he been contented only to be president of a great republic for his elevation to the presidency was legitimate and even after he became a despot he continued to be a high-bred gentleman in the english sense which is more than can be said of his uncle no one has ever denied that from first to last louis napoleon was courteous affable gentle patient and kind with a control over his feelings and thoughts absolutely marvelous and unprecedented in a public man if we accept disraeli nothing disturbed his serenity very rarely was he seen in a rage he stooped and coaxed and flattered even when he sent his enemies to cayenne the share taken by napoleon the third in the affairs of italy has already been treated of yet a look from that point of view may find place here the interference of austria with the italian states not only her own subjects there but the independent states as well has been called a standing menace to europe it was finally brought to a crisis of conflict by the king of sardinia who had already provided himself with a friend and ally in the french emperor and when on the twenty ninth of april eighteen fifty nine austria crossed the river ticino in a hostile array the combined french and sardinian troops were ready to do battle the campaign was short and everywhere disastrous to the austrians so that on july sixth an armistice was concluded and on july twelfth the peace of Villafranca ended the war with lombardy ceded to sardinia while nice and savoy were the reward of the french justifying by this addition to the territory and glory of france the emperor's second war of prestige louis napoleon reached the culmination of his fame and of real or supposed greatness i mean his external power and grandeur for i see no evidence of real greatness except such as may be won by astuteness tact cunning and dissimulation when he returned to paris as the conqueror of the austrian armies he was then generally supposed to be great both as a general and as an administrator when he was neither a general nor an administrator as subsequent events proved but his court was splendid distinguished foreigners came to do him homage even monarchs sought his friendship and a nod of his head was ominous he had delivered italy as he had humiliated russia he had made france a great political power he had made paris the most magnificent city of the world though at boundless expense and everybody extolled the genius of Haussmann, his engineer who had created such material glories his fetes were beyond all precedent his wife gave the law to fashions and dresses and was universally extolled for her beauty and graces the great industrial exhibition in eighteen fifty five which surpassed in attractiveness that of london in eighteen fifty one drew strangers to his capital 
and gave a stimulus to art and industry certainly he seemed to be a most fortunate man for the murmurs and intrigues of that constellation of statesmen which grew up with the restoration of the bourbons and the antipathies of editors and literary men were not generally known the army especially gloried in the deeds of a man whose successes reminded them of his immortal uncle while the lavish expenditures of government in every direction concealed from the eyes of the people the boundless corruption by which the services of his officials were secured but this splendid exterior was deceptive and a turn came to the fortunes of napoleon the third long predicted yet unexpected constantly on the watch for opportunities to aggrandize his name and influence the emperor allowed the disorders of civil war in mexico resulting in many acts of injustice to foreigners there to lead him into a combination with england and spain to interfere this was in eighteen sixty one when the united states were entering upon the terrific struggles of their own civil war and were not able to prevent this european interference although regarding it as most unfriendly to republican institutions within a year england and spain withdrew france remained sent more troops declared war on the government of president juarez fought some battles entered the city of mexico convened the assembly of notables and on their declaring for a limited hereditary monarchy the french emperor proposed for their monarch the archduke maximilian younger brother of francis joseph the austrian emperor maximilian accepted and in june eighteen sixty four arrived upheld however most feebly by the notables and relying chiefly on french bayonets which had driven juarez to the northern part of the country but against the expectation of napoleon the third the great rebellion in the united states collapsed and this country became a military power which europe was compelled to respect a nation that could keep in the field over a million of soldiers was not to be despised while the civil war was in progress the united states government was compelled to ignore the attempt to establish a french monarchy on its southern borders but no sooner was the war ended than it refused to acknowledge any government in mexico except that of president juarez which louis napoleon had overthrown so that although the french emperor had bound himself with solemn treaties to maintain twenty-five thousand french troops in mexico he was compelled to withdraw these forces and leave maximilian to his fate he advised the young austrian to save himself by abdication and to leave mexico with the troops but maximilian felt constrained by his sense of honor to remain and refused in march eighteen sixty seven this unfortunate prince was made prisoner by the republicans and was unscrupulously shot his calamities and death excited the compassion of europe and with it was added a profound indignation for the man who had unwittingly lured him on to his ruin louis napoleon's military prestige received a serious blow and his reputation as a statesman likewise and although the splendor of his government and throne was as great as ever his fall in the eyes of the discerning was near at hand by this time louis napoleon had become prematurely old he suffered from acute diseases his constitution was undermined he was no longer capable of carrying the burdens he had assumed his spirits began to fail he lost interest in the pleasures which had at first amused him he found delight in nothing not even in his reviews and fetes he was completely unweed his failing health seemed to affect his mind he became vacillating and irresolute he lost his former energies he saw the gulf opening which was to swallow him up he knew that his situation was desperate and that something must be done to retrieve his fortunes his temporary popularity with his own people was breaking too the mexico fiasco humiliated them 
the internal affairs of the empire were more and more interfered with and controlled by the catholic church through the intrigues and influences of the empress a bigoted spanish catholic and this was another source of unpopularity for france was not a priest-ridden country and the emperor was blamed for the growing ecclesiastical power in civil affairs he had invoked war to interest the people and war had saved him for a time but the consequences of war pursued him as he was still an overrated man and known to be restless and unscrupulous germany feared him and quietly armed making preparations for an attack which seemed only too probable his negotiation with the king of holland for the cession of the duchy of luxembourg by which acquisition he hoped to offset the disgrace which his mexican enterprise had caused excited the jealousy of prussia for by the treaties of eighteen fifteen prussia obtained the right to garrison the fortress the strongest in europe next to gibraltar and had no idea of permitting it to fall into the hands of france the irresistible current which was then setting in for the union of the german states under the rule of prussia and for which bismarck had long been laboring as had cavour for the unity of italy caused a great outcry among the noisy but shallow politicians of paris who deluded themselves with the idea that france was again invincible and not only they but the french people generally fancied that france was strong enough to conquer half of europe the politicians saw in a war with prussia the aggrandizement of french interests and did all they could to hasten it on it was popular with the nation at large who saw only one side and especially so with the generals of the army who aspired to new laurels napoleon the third blustered and bullied and threatened which pleased his people but in his heart he had his doubts and had no desire to attack prussia so long as the independence of the southern states of germany was maintained but when the designs of bismarck became more and more apparent to cement a united germany and thus to raise up a formidable military power louis napoleon sought alliances in anticipation of a conflict which could not be much longer delayed first the french emperor turned to austria whom he had humiliated at solferino and incensed by the aid which he had given to victor emmanuel to break the austrian domination in italy as well as outraged its sympathies by his desertion of maximilian in mexico no cordial alliance could be expected from this power unless he calculated on its hostility to prussia for the victory she had lately won count boast the austrian chancellor was a bitter enemy to prussia and hoped to regain the ascendancy which austria had once enjoyed under metternich so promises were made to the french emperor but they were never kept and austria really remained neutral in the approaching contrast to the great disappointment of napoleon the third he also sought the aid of italy which he had reason to expect from the service he had rendered to piedmont but the garibaldians had embroiled france with the italian people in their attempt to overthrow the papal government which was protected by french troops and louis napoleon by the reoccupation of rome seemed to bar the union of the italian people passionately striving for national unity thus the italians also stood aloof from france although victor emmanuel personally was disposed to aid her in eighteen seventy france found herself isolated and compelled in case of war with prussia to fight single-handed if napoleon the third had exercised the abilities he had shown at the beginning of his career he would have found means to delay a conflict for which he was not prepared or avoid it altogether but in eighteen seventy his intellect was shattered and he felt himself powerless to resist the current which was bearing him away to his destruction he showed the most singular incapacity as an administrator he did not really know the condition of his army he supposed he had four hundred and fifty thousand effective troops but really possessed a little over three hundred thousand while prussia had over one-third more than this completely equipped and disciplined and with improved weapons he was deceived by the reports of his own generals to whom he had delegated everything 
instead of looking into the actual state of affairs himself, as his uncle would have done, and as Thiers did under Louis-Philippe. More than a third of his regiments were on paper alone, or dwindled in size. The monstrous corruptions of his reign had permeated every part of the country. The necessary arms, ammunition, and material of war in general were deplorably deficient. No official reports could be replied upon, and few of his generals could be implicitly trusted. If ever infatuation blinded a nation to its fate, it most signally marked France in 1870. Nothing was now wanting but the spark to kindle the conflagration, and this was supplied by the interference of the French government with the nomination of a German prince to the vacant throne of Spain. The Prussian king gave way in the matter of Prince Leopold, but refused further concessions. Leopold was sufficiently magnanimous to withdraw his claims, and here French interference should have ended. But France demanded guarantees that no future candidate should be proposed without her consent. Of course the Prussian king, seeing with the keen eyes of Bismarck, and armed to the teeth under the supervision of Moltke, the greatest general of the age, who could direct, with the precision of a steam engine on a track, the movements of the Prussian army, itself a mechanism, treated with disdain this imperious demand from a power which he knew to be inferior to his own. Count Bismarck craftily lured on his prey, who was already goaded forward by his home war party, with the Empress at their head. Negotiations ceased, and Napoleon III made his fatal declaration of hostilities, to the grief of the few statesmen who foresaw the end. Even then, the condition of France was not desperate if the government had shown capacity, but conceit, vanity, and ignorance blinded the nation. Louis-Napoleon should have known, and probably did know, that the contending forces were uneven, that he had no generals equal to Moltke, that his enemies could crush him in the open field, that his only hope was in a well-organized defense. But his generals rushed madly on to destruction against irresistible forces, incapable of forming a combination, while the armies they led were smaller than anybody supposed. Napoleon III hoped that by rapidity of movement he could enter southern Germany before the Prussian armies could be massed against him. But here he dreamed, for his forces were not ready at the time appointed, and the Prussians crossed the Rhine without obstruction. Then followed the Battle of Wirth on the 6th of August, when Marshal McMahon, with only 45,000 men, ventured to resist the Prussian crown prince with a 100,000, and lost, consequently, a large part of his army and opened a passage through the northern Vosages to the German troops. On the same day, Frossard's corps was defeated by Prince Frederick Charles near Saarbrücken, while the French emperor remained at Metz irresolute, infatuated, and helpless. On the 12th of August, he threw up the direction of his armies altogether, and appointed Marshal Bazaine commander-in-chief, thus proclaiming his own incapacity as a general. Bazaine still had more than two hundred thousand men under his command, and might have taken up a strong position on the Moselle, or retreated in safety to Chalon, but he fell back on Gravelot, when, being defeated on the 18th, he withdrew within the defences of Metz. He was now surrounded by two hundred and fifty thousand men, and he made no effort to escape. McMahon attempted to relieve him, but was ordered by the government at Paris to march to the defence of that city. On this line, however, he got no farther than Sedan, where all was lost on September 1st, the entire army and the emperor himself surrendering as prisoners of war. The French had fought gallantly, but were outnumbered at every point. Nothing now remained to the conquerors but to advance to the siege of Paris. The throne of Napoleon III was overturned, and few felt sympathy for his misfortunes, since he was responsible for the overwhelming calamities which overtook his country, and which his country never forgave. 
in less than a month he fell from what seemed to be the proudest position in europe and stood out to the eye of the world in all the hateful deformity of a defeated despot who deserved to fall the suddenness and completeness of his destruction has been paralleled only by the defeat of the armies of darius by alexander the great all delusions as to louis napoleon's abilities vanished forever all his former grandeur even his services were at once forgotten he paid even a sadder penalty than his uncle who never lost the affections of his subjects while the nephew destroyed all rational hopes of the future restoration of his family and became accursed it is possible that the popular verdict in reference to louis napoleon on his fall may be too severe this world sees only success or failure as the test of greatness with the support of the army and the police the heads of which were simply his creatures whom he had bought or from selfish purposes had pushed him on in his hours of irresolution and guided him the coup d'etat was not a difficult thing any more than any bold robbery and with the control of the vast machinery of government that machinery which is one of the triumphs of civilization an irresistible power it is not marvelous that he retained his position in spite of the sneers or hostilities of statesmen out of place or of editors whose journals were muzzled or suppressed especially when the people saw great public improvements going on had both bread and occupation read false accounts of military successes and were bewildered by fetes and outward grandeur but when the army was a sham and corruption had pervaded every office under government when the expenses of living had nearly doubled from taxation extravagance bad example and wrong ideas of life when trusted servants were turned into secret enemies incapable and false when such absurd mistakes were made as the expedition to mexico and the crowning folly of the war with prussia proving the incapacity and folly of the master hand the machinery which directed the armies and the bureaus and all affairs of state itself broke down and the catastrophe was inevitable louis napoleon certainly was not the same man in eighteen seventy that he was in eighteen fifty his burdens had proved too great for his intellect he fell and disappeared from history in a storm of wrath and shame which also hid from the eyes of the people the undoubted services he had rendered to the cause of order and law and to that of a material prosperity which was at one time the pride of his country and the admiration of the whole world but a nation is greater than any individual even if he be a miracle of genius when the imperial cause was lost and the armies of france were dispersed or shut up in citadels and the hosts of germany were converging upon the capital paris resolved on sustaining a siege apparently hopeless rather than yield to a conqueror before the last necessity should open its gates the self-sacrifices which its whole population supposed to be frivolous and enervated made to preserve their homes and their works of art their unparalleled sufferings their patience and self-reliance under the most humiliating circumstances their fertility of resources their cheerfulness under hunger and privation and above everything else their submission to law with every temptation to break it proved that the spirit of the nation was unbroken that their passive virtues rivaled their most glorious deeds of heroism that if light-headed in prosperity they knew how to meet adversity and that they had not lost faith in the greatness of their future perhaps they would not have made so stubborn a resistance to destiny if they had realized their true situation but would have opened their gates at once to overwhelming foes as they did on the fall of the first napoleon they probably calculated that bazaine would make his escape from metz with his two hundred thousand men find his way to the banks of the loire rally all the military forces of the south of france and then march with his additional soldiers to relieve paris and drive the germans back to the rhine but this was not to be 
and it is idle to speculate on what might have been done either to raise the siege of paris one of the most memorable in the whole history of the world or to prevent the advance of the germans upon the capital itself it is remarkable that the parisians were able to hold out so long thanks to the genius and precaution of thiers who had erected the formidable forts outside the walls of paris in the reign of louis philippe and still more remarkable was the rapid recovery of the french nation after such immense losses of men and treasure after one of the most signal and humiliating overthrows which history records probably france was never stronger than she is to-day in her national resources in her readiness for war and in the apparent stability of her republican government which ensued after the collapse of the second empire she has been steady persevering and even patient for a hundred years in her struggles for political freedom whatever mistakes she has made and crimes she has committed to secure this highest boon which modern civilization confers a great hero may fall a great nation may be enslaved but the cause of human freedom will in time triumph over all despots over all national inertness and all national mistakes authorities abbott m baxter s p day victor hugo mccray s m smucker f m whitehurst have written more or less on louis napoleon see justin mccarthy's modern leaders king lake's crimean war history of the franco-german war lives of bismarck moltke cavour life of lord palmerston life of nicholas life of thiers harriet martineau's biographical sketches w r gregg's life of Tottleben. end of section thirteen